Hello, this is UCL Uncovering Politics, and today we're looking at the relationship between the European Union and business. Too close, too distant, or are things maybe a bit more complex? Hello, my name is Alan Rennick, and welcome to UCL Uncovering Politics, the podcast of the School of Public Policy and Department of Political Science at University College London. How the European Union relates to the world of business has long been a matter of great contention. Scepticism towards the EU on the right of politics has for decades been fueled by the perception that Brussels is a bureaucratic regulation generator with little understanding of how business operates. On the Eurosceptic left, by contrast, the EU has been seen as a capitalist club in hock to big business, incapable of seeing the interests of ordinary people. So which is it? Or are things, in fact, as is usually the case, rather more complex? How has the relationship between business and the EU evolved over time? How does it vary from sector to sector? And what does it all mean for policy outcomes? Well, a new book sheds much fresh light called Business Lobbying in the European Union. The book is co-authored by UCL's very own David Cohen, along with Alexander Katsiitis from the London School of Economics and Mattia Vanoni from King's College London. And I'm delighted to say that David Cohen, who is Professor of Public Policy here in the UCL Department of Political Science and founding director of UCL's Global Governance Institute, joins me now to discuss it. Welcome, David, to UCL Uncovering Politics. And let's start with a kind of basic question. Your book is called Business Lobbying in the European Union. What do you mean by business lobbying? Okay, well, thank you, Alan, for inviting me to to talk about this book, a, a book that's been some 20 to 30 years in the making. So hopefully, hopefully some insights to, to give you. Um, well, it's a billion pound business. Lobbying in, in Brussels is a billion pound business. Um, it's probably second only to Washington in terms of the number of lobbyists that are active. Uh, I logged on this morning onto the transparency register to see how many organizations are currently registered, and it's just become mandatory from January. And there's 12,300 interest groups um, that are formally registered uh, to, to have access to the European institutions of the Commission, the Parliament, and the Council. And probably of that, that 12,000 12, um, organizations, which average between four and five people, about half of these these groups and individuals are representing in-house lobbying groups. In-house lobbying groups are trade associations, trade unions, and companies. So economic interests make about 50% of the lobbyists that are active in Brussels. And of that 50%, there's about 750 companies that now have European representation that is formally registered to have access to the European Commission and Parliament. There's probably more that have European government affairs activity, but those that have that have registered. So there are a lot of lobbyists in Brussels. If you timesed up those 12,000 by four or five people, we're talking 30 to 40,000 individuals that are lobbying lobbying on a day-to-day basis, trying to make representation, trying to change policy, trying to help formulate policy. And they're dealing, and I think this is a key point, with only about 40,000 EU officials. I mean, people forget it's a small bureaucracy, Brussels. Um, The Commission and Parliament and and Council Secretariat probably make up about 
40,000 individuals that are making policy. And if you factor in, many of those are also translation and back, uh, and back staff. Um, the actual policy-making staff is quite small. So this creates an interesting dynamics. It creates a sort of resource dependency where business wants to influence regulation. It wants to drive forward the, the single market and the norms of, uh, of regulation. And the commission and the parliament and the officials that are making policy need inputs. They need expertise because they are understaffed. You know, directors are often driven by one unit and a few people. So they need interest group representation. And so I think one thing to hold in mind while we talk is actually that over time, a very distinct style of interest representation has emerged in Brussels. Wow. I'm fascinated to find out what that is. Um, let me let me leave our listeners slightly in suspense before we get there, because as ever, as political scientists, we uh, want to answer these questions through some kind of rigorous methodology. And we want to ensure that we uh, we know what we're claiming based on, on good evidence. So, You've, you've described there a little bit this huge, complex world that you're studying here. How do you go about actually getting a handle on what's going on in there? Um, I mean, it sounds, sounds like a gargantuan task that you have given yourself. It is. A, absolutely. It's a huge task. And it's been a lot of fun. And it's been, you know, as I said, 20, 30 years of studying this. I have studied other things as well. But, but you know, this has been one of my primary research projects for 30 years. Um, and over that 30 years, I've set out to map the nature of the firm's political activity at the macro level, basically, trying to assess how firms have supplied, have behaved, have changed and have involved in response to changes in treaties, single market, Maastricht, Amsterdam, Lisbon. Each of these has changed the institutions of the European Union and the locus of activity, perhaps, for companies have have they shifted with Maastricht and Amsterdam towards the European Parliament more, for example, as trilogues and, and oversight of the Parliament has increased? Um, did we see a shift towards direct action and, uh, and political engagement with the Commission, with the creation of the single market, for example, which removes qualified majority voting and so forth? You know, created the old-style blocking in the nation-states and then the companies had to be more proactive and reactive in dealing directly with commission officials and, of course, with the creation of the single market, the 300 directives that, that pushed and launched, the, launched um, the single market. So created incentives for companies to come uh, and lobby and participate. And so back in the early 90s when I started studying this, I constructed the first large survey of company behavior. Um, and I asked them at the time, what did they do before the single market, i.e. in 84, 85, and in, 90, in 94, 95? And then every 10 years, I've replicated that survey of the top 300 companies um, in Brussels to, to see how do they allocate resources, time, money, expertise, across which institutions, um, collective action and direct action, and their logic for each. Why would they, why would they join associations? Why do they go directly? How do they organize their internal government affairs and reporting lines, who they talk to? How do they coordinate their subsidiaries to go back into the nation states and so forth? Um, and I think that macro sweep is a really original part of this book, to have that historical story of the growth of the firm from 20, 30 companies, you know, pre the single market, you know, the European roundtable basically helping to push the single market. Um, through to, you know, the 750 companies we have today and probably during the 90s, you know, 300, 400 companies going to Brussels and professionalizing their government affairs, breaking from the national traditions 
of interest representation. So they were no longer French companies. They're still French companies or British companies, but learning that there had to be a distinct style of, of political business government relationships in Brussels. So I've charted, I've been very lucky to chart that, that learning, that, tra- that transition, the reallocation of resources from towards the Commission, increasingly towards the European Parliament, the rebirth of trade associations, which is very, very interesting. Um, you know, everyone talked about them being lowest common denominator policymakers in the early 90s. But as you can build your credentials, as these trade associations have restructured themselves with large firm membership, they've started to provide a public good um, f- that is being seen to be a good European, which you can discount for improved direct action as a private actor, as a company down, down the line. They're more focused in their goals. Um, there's been a disaggregation of association. To be able to capture that history with these three large surveys, I think is an incredibly original part of, of, of the book. The second part is based on large data, big data, I, I alluded to the tran, uh, transparency register already, um, which is basically a data set where companies or all organisations that wish to have access to the Commission and Parliament and now the Council from January um, have to disclose their representation uh, and disclose the budgets that they, they spend, um, which um, DGs they go to or which committees they're attending. DGs so, are director generals, so senior officials within the commission, yeah. Exactly, ministries. You would, you know, the various ministries of. So how, how do they go to the different, different um, ministries? And here we're looking, interestingly, and I think uniquely as well, the supply and the demand. You know, there are studies of case studies of how companies have behaved on a particular policy area, and there are studies of bureaucracy of the European Commission. But what we were looking at is what did the Commission require, or what did the European Parliament require, what did it demand, what did it ask for um, to participate um, in these different in the for different policy areas and at different stages of the policy cycle, and then what did companies provide to access this policy process? So. There's an interesting meso study of density and diversity, the number of interests that come and the diversity of interests and how there's variation in that density and diversity across different policy areas and along the policy cycle. And then perhaps the final and I think very interesting finding, almost mythbuster, a colleague of ours once called it a mythbuster when she read the paper, um, is the microanalysis, which is, again, based on studying career paths and interviewing government affairs officials in in companies, offices in Brussels, the heads um, of these offices, I should say, Um, not not the functionaries or the stagiaires that may be working as juniors in the team, but the heads of these offices, which are often only two or three people. And we ask them, you know, who did they lobby? You know, how did they lobby? You know, so the style that had emerged. How did they organize their government affairs offices? What skills did they think they needed to be able to do this? And what their career backgrounds were. And we showed that even though we talk about revolving doors a lot in Brussels, we talk about it in every capital. Actually, the revolving doors wasn't as big as one would think. So you get the salient newspaper story of Commissioner X joining the board of a company or MPY joining a consultancy. But government affairs offices of companies primarily are driven by people who've come through the company or certainly through the sector. So they are 70% of those we, we looked at, some 300 uh, individuals plus, 70% of these had private sector backgrounds as opposed to public sector backgrounds. And this is 
driven a little bit and we can perhaps talk about it because of the nature of the civil service in Brussels people stay for life or stay long uh, are less likely to leave the European Commission or Parliament once they've joined but it's also the nature of the policy exchange you need people that understand the business are technically proficient can understand the widgets or the chemical compound that needs to be lobbied about and they need to be able to go into their company and manage subsidiaries and nation-state voices so that they can get a holistic multi-level lobbying strategy in place. And I think the historical sweep's interesting, and I think this micro-study, which we call sliding doors as opposed to revolving doors, is also quite original. Okay, so we really have a wealth of evidence uh, here, as you say, built up over decades of research. And you've given us some insights there into some of your findings, particularly about the nature of the people who are involved in this lobbying activity. Can you say a bit more about your kind of core findings? What You, you hinted earlier on that you find this uh, distinct model of, of business lobbying and relationship between the EU and business. What is that? Okay, absolutely. So, as I said um, in the sort of preamble just a moment ago, we've seen a, a rise of direct action. Direct, direct action exploded in the 90s um, with firms creating these offices. We went from the sort of 50 offices pre the single market to some 200 plus and now 750. So direct action at the European Commission increased. And with treaty changes, as I said, increasing increasing use of the European Parliament as well. So maybe 40-45% of all their political resources are going into direct action. Um, and that's interesting. And some of the logic of even using the trade associations is driven by them trying to build goodwill and reputation for their direct action. It's a sort of almost discounting um, reputation building. So you participate in collective to get good direct. Um, and this direct action, I think, needs to be explained as a distinct style of business government relations. It isn't like Paris, it isn't like London, it isn't like Berlin, um, which have their own institutional structures. This is based on credibility and trust. So the currency of influence in the US is perhaps finance, you know, com campaign contributions, um, knowing you know, the revolving doors, your political capital of knowing the, the, the president or, or, or the heads of the, of the various agencies. In, in, in Brussels, it's about technical input. It's about, about being credible and trustworthy in the consultations. Because as I said, EU officials are in place for a very long time. They have a lot of discretion about who they talk to or don't talk to. Um, yes, there are formal consultations, but there's a lot of pre-talking before consultation calls go out, as we all know in policy. And even when consultations happen, there is some discretion about where you put the emphasis and where you put the weight. So commission officials are looking for technical input to legitimize their policy. They always have these trade-offs as a commission, which is seen as a regulatory state. They have to justify their policy. And they justify it in two ways, input legitimacy and output legitimacy. Input legitimacy is about the collab is about being involved in consultation, being seen to be talking, so having the widest sort of but the output is about having good policy that can work, that can be implemented and can be delivered. And so you need to have grassroots participants involved in this. And companies are one of the key, particularly on you know, market regulatory standards or market creating standards or production standards are going to be key interlocutors here. So they want to work with those that can provide that technical information and can provide it in a trustworthy way and of a high quality way. So they want to talk to people that are engineers, that are scientists, that understand the true nuances, the unintended consequences of a piece of policy. So 
I would say that one of the key findings, and it's something you know we talk about a lot at the beginning of the book and at the end of the book, is the currency of influence is the reputation of these government affairs officers to be good technical output legitimizers. Um, That's fascinating. So you're you're characterizing the system as 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 really quite kind of technocratic. It, it, so it's it's an exchange of expert lobbyists with expert civil servants, expert officials, if you like. Absolutely. And you're con you contrasted that, though, with the position in the United States. I mean, I guess my question is, which is the unusual one? Is, is the EU typical of other governments, or is the EU really something quite unique? Well, I was going to come to that later, but absolutely. I mean, I think it's, you know, the way I would characterize the EU is it's a regulatory state. I am a uh, an ex-student of Nino Maioni, who was the the, the the godfather of the the phrase the regulatory state for the EU, but I you know I I believe and I can see this in in operation. Now we talk about democratic deficit. We talk about the Parliament replacing or facilitating more democracy within the policy process, and we do explore this actually leads nicely. Thank you into the Mesa, where we try and look at the the nature of the policy. And the policy cycle, and see: will we see different degrees of mobilisation? Will we see different um, densities of in types of interest groups? You know, more business or more civil society or NGOs, and where would we see this? Now, what I was expecting to see when we started that study was that we would see variation in styles between the Commission and the Parliament in terms of mobilisation, and that that would be they would be different regardless of the nature of the policy. What we found is that the, while the numbers are different, more more go to the commission. You know, the twelve thousand three hundred go to the commission. Only maybe two thousand go to the parliament in terms of interest groups. If you looked at the total pie in our graph, it's still fifty percent business going to the parliament, just as the commission. Still twenty five percent, twenty seven percent of NGOs going to each. So the the ratios are about the same. Now, what's interesting here is the number of actors that were active in the commission on the business side are the same. It's the same firms as trade associations going across to lobby the policy cycle. But when we look at the NGOs, some of the NGOs are embedded often because they're funded by the commission in the commission. And we see different NGOs, perhaps not all, but you know, the, the percentage of new entrants in NGOs is, is greater in the European Parliament. Where we see variation in mobilisation on input and output legitimacy and in terms of the numbers and types is across policy domains. So if a policy is highly regulated, competition, environmental, these sort of areas, we see more business and less NGOs. And that's because, to a degree, it's being driven by the output legitimacy of making good policy. And where it's more redistributive, development, some, you know, development grants or education and so forth, we see a wider consultation and more input legitimacy driving the, the constellation of interests that mobilise. And these patterns, not in total numbers, but in ratio terms, are the same in the Commission and in the European Parliament. So that's very, very interesting that the norms of the Commission have, have sort of transposed across into the mobilisation rates and types of mobilisation in the European Parliament. And this may be driven by institutional change again because of trilogues, because of so much is now in first readings, first readings being basically that the committees 
not the plenary, not the po- the politics, the high politics of parties, but the te- technical debates in the technical committees, having to respond quickly to consultations with the parliament, with the commission, mean that it's become a more even technocratic process even in the parliament. And I think, again, that's an interesting observation. So the mobilisation rates are very, very similar, or the ratios of mobilisation rates are very, very similar. And, it, and the variation is driven by the type of policy, not necessarily the policy cycle. And if I understand correctly, you were suggesting that the, the, the kind of technocratic nature of this overall process is, is partly explained by the nature of the, um, the policy areas that the European Union is in, if you like. Exactly. It's, it's in areas that kind of lend themselves to this more technocratic, more regulatory yeah. approach. But exactly. it's, it's, it sounds like it's not purely that. You're suggesting that sort of norms that have emerged early on continue to shape things even as the EU evolves into a different kind of institution. I I think it's a bit of both because there's evolution, there's institutional isomorphism, you learn what's best, how to deal with a a functionaire, you realise you see your colleague being marginalised because you misinform, so you're excluded from the policy, they're excluded from the policy process, so you don't behave like that, or a company has to reappoint a government affairs individual because they've lost their credibility. Um, but yes, I, I, you know, I think fundamentally I would say, if you know, to answer your question, I think the EU has its own now business government tradition, which is distinct to Brussels, driven by by the fact that it's an agency with a lot of you know regulatory authorities delegated it to it from the member states you know um and that actors are seeking to influence those technical specifications so it's a more technocratic process by definition even though the parliament has oversight it's still oversight of technical issues so it needs to consult with technical experts as well to get the input to be able to make sense of of, of this legislation So money is less important in terms of PACs and the US style. Um, The other thing I think is important to Brussels is the capacity issue that I raised at the beginning. The civil service is incredibly small, very stable. There's not as much turnover as domestic civil services. Um, There's not this sort of privatization of public policy that we see in the UK and in other countries. so that and there's and it's a small you know it would stack up with a small ministry if you think you know thirty thousand policymakers, or, or it's not it's not large. Um, there's less ties to political parties. Obviously, that's more at the domestic than at the at the European. And then we've got the multi-level governance aspect as well. You know where number of policy cycles you've got to follow the cycle in brussels you've got to go back into the nation state you've got to mobilize your government but you've also got to get civil servants into the into the comatology committees which are the technical committees again we're back to technical technical um where you're getting civil servants pulled up from the nation states that understand the widgets again um so it's a sort of multi-level game driven very much sort of in a in a technocratic regulatory way and what's the overall effect of this? So I, in my introduction at the start, I talked about those big debates about whether the EU is a capitalist club or, a, or a, an institution that is deaf to the, a bureaucratic institution deaf to the interests of business. How, how does it all add up? How, how, is business too powerful in this system? No. I mean, I talk about, I 
coined the phrase uh, elite pluralism. Well, I didn't coin the phrase. There is a phrase, uh, elite pluralism, and I apply it in the context of the EU. The business is an important interlocutor. It facilitates. It's been part of the engine of European integration. It want, you know, we wanted the, it wanted the single market. It wanted to drive um, you know, market creation uh, and market regulations and production standards and so forth, and get the economies of scale that that that, that could could bring. So. The Commission agenda or the European Union's agenda of integration is facilitated by working with, in a functional way, with uh, with, with business. Um, but the EU is aware of the risks. Um, it needs the inputs. It can't make policy without. But it, you know, even domestic regulation. If you went to Ofcom, you would have a similar probably conversation going on. You know, they need to talk to the Deloncom companies. Um, but they try and manage the risk, and they manage the risk. Um, there's been a, the creation of the transparency register. It's one of the most full uh, interest group registers uh, in the world. It's it's about to become mandatory. It was voluntary until January. Until January, um, there's various conversations going on in Brussels at the moment. It's been expanded to the council. They want permanent reps to also declare uh, representation and interest mobilisation. That that will be interesting because then you get into national codes of conduct um, and 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 the spillovers there. Um, so there's a code of conduct of behaviour. So it's, as well as the transparency register there's a sign up to a code of conduct but of course it needs more teeth and we need more sanctions to make this work um there are still loopholes you for example a phone call to an assistant of mp isn't necessarily logged you going to a meeting would be logged but your phone call to an assistant wouldn't so mps logging these informal conversations needs to come into place the same with commission officials um but overall i think they are attempting to have codes that 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 at least show some transparency in behavior and then the other thing i would bring out is it isn't always elite. As I said, there's a sort of chameleon pluralism. Depending on the policy area, we see different mobilization rates. And they fund a lot of groups. The Commission funds a lot of societal groups to mobilize at the European level to overcome collective action problems of being mobilized at the European level. So actually, we see a lot of civil society groups that aren't always mobilized in national capitals because the Commission funds the creation of these groups to to participate in, in consultation and dialogue. So I would say they're very aware of the risk. I wouldn't I would like to say they aren't captured. Um, it's a two-way process. And actually sometimes you could argue there's reverse capture because many of the government affairs people stay in their jobs as well a long time. And they buy into the European project and they become very much of the Brussels milieu. And occasionally companies actually have to pull their people back to, to Bonn, Lon- London, Berlin, Paris, and, and remind them of, of, of who, who they're working for. Yeah. And presumably, and we're focusing here mainly on business lobbying, but presumably uh, there are lots of other voices in this process. So I mean, you're thinking about expert uh, um, information that officials might want, and in in terms of environmental lo- regulation, for example, presumably there's a whole green lobby in Brussels working away as well. And I mean, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. First of all, that if you look to the book, you'd see the breakdowns for different policies, and you can see large numbers of NGOs and civil society groups mobilising across all policy areas, even highly technical areas of climate change regulation. Um, and what's actually quite interesting is because the commission is overloaded, is understaffed, sometimes these NGOs actually 
operate almost like gatekeepers. You know, they facilitate, you have to actually create coalitions. You know, you'll have high energy users against low energy user business working with NGOs or, or civil society. You know, cheaper good for civil society, a green NGO for low energy users. And so you get very interesting advocacy coalitions forming. And sometimes the NGOs are actually the gatekeepers. They're the ones that are helping the company or the organization legitimize their voice. Um, so you get very, very sophisticated um, coalitions forming. And we have some nice little vignettes through the book of case studies where this happens. Fascinating. Final question. Um, could national authorities learn from how, how things are done at the EU level? Would, would, it, would it be better if policymaking at the UK level, say, were closer to how it's done in Brussels? Yeah, that's a very good question. And it's, it was a very heated conversation a few years ago in Brussels. Brussels, as I say, has led very much on this transparency register and being, I think, quite ambitious in its early days and particularly as we move towards the um, mandatory. Though there are problems of oversight and teeth and for, in enforcement and what people really disclose and what they really do. But at least it's an attempt. Um and there have been discussions in, in national capitals about this. And uh, at this present time, there's very limited introduction of these transparent. Um, Germany has a very, very weak, uh, very limited transparency register. The French have introduced one, again, quite limited. The UK one, as you know, I think was just for, for consultancies as opposed to business or, or trade associations. You know, actually, the organizations are probably knocking on the door much more, much more regularly. That said... You can, if you wish, you can find who's visited Minister X, Y, or Z. It's just much harder when you start going into the the day to day um, civil servant level. That you, you, which is probably where you want to be looking to actually see how policies are are formulated. So, I think there is something to be learned at the domestic level, but it's a highly political question, um, and it was it was one of the reasons why the council took so long to to agree to it being manda- ma- mandatory for them as well. Mm. Well, thanks so much, David. This has been really, really fascinating. I have to confess, when I saw a book titled "Business Lobbying in the European Union," it didn't didn't set my blood, uh, my, my heart racing. Uh, <laughs> but uh, you have uh, shown why why this is actually really, really important and a really fascinating area. And also, you've shed light into just how we how we come to understand uh, such uh, complex interactions taking place behind doors. Uh, so excellent this all our love. Yeah. If you every regulation is coming out of Brussels, and that, you know, still even with Brexit, will touch us for a long time uh, in the UK. Um, and it's also incredibly important for the European integration process going forward as well. So really understanding how business interacts with with the Commission, Parliament, so forth is is fundamental if you have any interest in the European Union. We should all care much, much more. Thank you, David. And if anyone would like to read the book, it is, as I said, called Business Lobbying in the European Union by David Cohen, Alexander Katsaitis and Mattia Vanoni. And it's out now from Oxford University Press. Next time, we're looking at the powers of governments, in particular, the things that a country's executive branch can do without needing the consent of the legislature, so-called prerogative powers. These have been controversial in recent years here in the UK, but the UK is far from alone. So UCL's resident expert, Robert Hazel, will be here to give us a primer and point up some of the key questions. Remember to make sure you don't miss out on future episodes of UCL Uncovering Politics. All you need to do is subscribe. You can do so on Apple, Spotify, or whatever podcast provider you use. 
I'm Alan Rennick. Our producer is Abby Turner. Our theme music is written and performed by John Mann. This has been UCL Uncovering Politics. Thank you for listening. <laughs>